0: I believe God's already been speaking to us, as has been said through the songs that we've sung and through the prayer that was prayed. I think God's already been speaking to us, and hopefully the message that we have this morning is going to continue that, that right along. Uh, this message this morning from Acts chapter 1 is uh, one that is, as, as we've said, is challenging, and it, it uh, boy was a little intimidating. However, um, those of you that are in Word partners and are, are Bible stu- learning how to study your Bible in various ways, um, as, as Pastor Merck said, it's, it's important, so important for us to, uh, um, to ask questions of the passage of Scripture that we're in, to, to look at the passage and to say, "Why is it there? What's it communicating?" how it's communicating it to us and um, sometimes uh, being intimidated by a passage is a good thing because you have to ask why am I intimidated and uh, one of the things that Pastor Steven said at the beginning uh, of the series on the book of Acts is that the scriptures are not for our information but for our transformation and it's easy to look at this passage and only see information and wonder, how am I going to make application? How am I going to apply this to my life? I think the information is leading us to that transformation. So with that, let's, uh, let's jump in. Uh, Pastor Stephen said that uh, the big idea of the book of Acts is that no obstacle overcomes the Father's plan in establishing Christ's kingdom. Because the Spirit empowers Christians to proclaim Christ. Or something like that. <laughs> uh, so, uh, what's the obstacle? It seems that uh, the obstacle that Luke puts before us is this this issue of Judas. And what do we do with Judas? It also, another obstacle is... Uh, The disciples were ready, so ready to get going. Um, Not the way we would think. The disciples were ready to get going because they're anticipating what they know to be true, and that is Jesus is the Messiah. And the Messiah is coming to set up his kingdom, to establish his kingdom. And so they ask, is it now that you're going to establish your kingdom? And they don't get the answer they were expecting. Okay, we knew that you said that Christ must first have to die. And so we've lived through that, and you told us that he was going to rise again, and we didn't get that at all. That didn't make any sense to us. But now we've lived through that and we've seen it. Now are you going to establish the kingdom? And he says, it's not for you know the times nor the seasons that the Father has placed in his authority. Not now. Instead, he tells them to go to Jerusalem and wait. Actually, he says, go to Jerusalem and wait and pray. And waiting and praying is probably the hardest thing that you can do, right? Waiting and praying for God to do what he's promised to do. Waiting and praying for God to do what he's promised to do. We're an impatient people. And the heart, one of the hardest things for us to do is wait. When it's time for us to get going, the hardest thing for us to do is wait. Wait on God to fulfill his promise. Um, I thought about, as I thought about this message, I thought about uh, bringing the one power tool that I own. I have a power drill. Uh, so I had to bring, thought about bringing it to church and, and setting it up. and uh, Because really, this is the setup. This is the preparation. And, uh, and then, obviously, plugging it in. Because until you plug it in, there is no power to do the job that needs to be done, as Pastor Stephen talked about in his intro. Like the toothbrush that won't work really well without power, without the power tool, without the drill that won't do the job without power. The work that God is calling his disciples now transitioning into apostles to do is a work of being his witnesses in Jerusalem and Judea and Samaria and to the ends of the earth, and that job cannot be done without power. Power. And so although the job is um, great and the laborers are few and there's great urgency in getting the job done, there's family members and friends that we we long to reach, fellow Israelites the disciples are, are faced with that they want to share the good news of Jesus about, and Jesus tells them to go to Jerusalem and wait. And pray. One of the other fascinating things about this passage is, is, as I was thinking about it, is this is the last passage in the New Testament before the church begins. So in many ways, it's the ending of some things. And the Acts chapter 2 is going to be the beginning of some significant things. The ending and the beginning. So, as I began to do what we do with, in Word Partners, what we do when we study the Bible, is I began to pour through the passage and ask my questions, and, and I came across two, uh, two things that really stood out to me. They're words that you won't necessarily see in your English Bible, uh, at least not in the same way as it is in the, in the Greek, in the original language, but it, it, it is there. There's two things that are necessary, two things that have to happen, two things that must happen. So sometimes the reason for waiting for the power to come on is that there are things that have to happen in preparation before the power comes on. I thought about Christmas time. And uh, some of the folks in our area especially uh, like to decorate their homes. And some people like to have more extravagant displays. And sometimes it takes hours. Sometimes it takes weeks. Sometimes it takes days and months for people to prepare for the time when they turn the power on. And there's this huge, massive display at Christmas time when the power comes on. There's some things that have to be done in preparation for the power to come on for these disciples, soon to be apostles, those who are sent, to take the message. First of all, Jesus promised in Matthew chapter 19, verse 30, and also Luke 22, verse 28, he, he said that uh, there would be a time when his kingdom would be established when these 12 disciples would sit on 12 thrones. Well, if that's gonna happen, then we have to have 12, and we only have 11, right? There's a problem, there's an obstacle, if you will, to the establishment of Christ's kingdom. God is doing some preparation and uh, it's easy to get lost in all the detail of the preparation and, and not see what, what this passage is really, if I can say it this way, screaming at us. It's telling us the same thing in various ways. One is the fact that there's this word, it is necessary, that gets used twice in the passage. Um, the other is, really... This is a companion book. So the Gospel of Luke and the Book of Acts are are really one book in many ways. And what we saw in the Gospel of Luke is that God had a plan. It wasn't an accident that Jesus came. It wasn't an accident that he was mistreated, misunderstood, that he was taken by the chief priests and the elders and crucified. That wasn't an accident. In fact, Peter in the next chapter is going to say it was all according to the predetermined plan of God. The predetermined plan of God. One of the things we're going to see in this passage is that over and over and over again, uh, God is working out his plan Some of you remember a TV show, I think it was back in the 1980s, um, The (laughs) A-Team. Some of you remember that. And uh, there was a uh, character who was the leader of the A-Team, Hannibal Smith, Colonel Hannibal Smith, and he had a phrase that he used to say. Anyone know what that phrase is? I love it when a plan comes together. I love it. When a plan comes together. I can tell you that as a teacher in a classroom, I love it when a plan comes together. As a guy who used to coach basketball, I, I love it when a plan comes together. When you put together a plan and you're successful and you work together and it all works out and all the details work just as you planned them. I love it when a plan comes together. Well, folks, God has a plan. And his plan isn't done when the book of Luke ends, his plan is still working as the book of Acts begins. And this section in, in Luke is about the outworking of God's plan. So, let's jump in. Uh, I'm going to jump into verse uh, 14. Sorry, 15. In those days, Peter stood up among the brothers. The company of persons was about 120. And, uh, and he said, brothers, the scripture had to be fulfilled. There's that word. The scripture had to be fulfilled. which the Holy Spirit spoke beforehand by the mouth of David concerning Judas, who became a guide to those who arrested Jesus. The scripture had to be fulfilled. So what we saw in, in the gospel of Luke is that what all the events that happened as Jesus goes from uh, Galilee to Jerusalem to the cross to the tomb to the resurrection, those things had to be fulfilled because they were part of God's plan. Judas was one that Jesus had informed them would be, the betrayer. He calls him the son of perdition, the son of condemnation, the son of judgment. So Peter recognizes that although there were 12 and now there are 11, the Old Testament scriptures really spoke about this and they had to be fulfilled. You see, David... In Psalm 69 and Psalm 109, and they're quoted for us in this passage, are going to talk about the fact that there is one who, whose house is going to become desolate. His dwelling place is going to become empty. And there's not going to be anyone who's going to dwell in it. In fact, David, the psalmist in Psalm 109, verse 8, says, Let another take his office. The plan had to be fulfilled. This isn't an accident. It looks like an obstacle, but really it's part of the outworking of God's plan. He was numbered among us and was allotted his share in the ministry. They had a ministry together. Uh, Judas was one of the 12 And had every opportunity to be one of the 12 after the resurrection. Except that Judas was a betrayer. God knew that. It wasn't a surprise to him. Jesus knew that. And it wasn't a surprise to him. It was a surprise to the disciples. But it wasn't a surprise to the Lord. Then there's this little parenthetical section here where. Um, verses 17, uh, verses uh, 18 and 19. Now this man acquired a field with the reward of his wickedness, and falling headlong, he burst open in the middle, and all his bowels gushed out, and it became known to the inhabitants of Jerusalem that the field was called, in their language, Akeldama—that that is, the field of blood. Um, Ike, no, not Ike, John, was, had to be away and um, asked me at the last second to lead the, um, our, our community group. And one of the questions I came up, to, came up with to ask the group was, what's your favorite gospel? And uh, one of the people in the group said, the gospel of Luke. And I said, Why? And I got an answer that I didn't expect. And, and she said, um, because Luke, this physician, was very careful about all the details. You can go back and check everything that Luke said and and see that it was true. He was careful about the details. He was precise. And I thought, wow, that's the exact opposite of what I would have said. <laughs> For me, Luke's my favorite gospel because it... it it reminds me of the humanity of Christ. Uh, there's lots of stories about how he interacts with people. It's very relational. And I, I enjoy that part. I, I identify with that. Here in, in this section, verses 18 and 19, we have a, 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 an event that's described by Luke that's different than what we have in Matthew. Matthew. So you come to a passage and you find a problem. It doesn't seem to fit with what we've read before in the Gospel of Matthew. In Matthew, it says that Luke, that Judas hung himself. Here it says that he fell and burst, burst open in the, in, in the middle, that is in the middle of his body, and his bowels gushed out. Uh, that's different. And there's ways to, to make sense of that. It could be that both, both were true. He hung himself. And then at some point he fell and his bowels gushed out. The, the important thing I think that Luke wants us to know is that because of this, this field was called the field of blood. Four. Four is written. Uh, four introduces an explanation. So now we come to the explanation. Psalm 69 And Psalm 109, the two psalms that are quoted by Peter, are psalms that talk about the Messiah. They're psalms of David, and they speak about his experience, but they transcend. They go beyond just talking about David's experience, and Jesus relates to them. The Messiah relates to them. The Messiah identifies with them. You can see the Messiah in them. And in these two passages, what Peter says is David spoke about Judas. Quickly, Psalm 69. It's an interesting psalm. It's one of the imprecatory psalms. An imprecatory psalm is a psalm where, where um, David, in this case, is praying to God and he's asking God to bring down judgment on his enemies. He's praying to God and he's asking God to 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 do to bring his judgment. Answer me, O Lord, for your loving kindness is good according to the greatness of your compassion. Turn to me and do not hide your face from your servant, for I am in distress. Answer me quickly. O draw near to my soul and redeem it. Ransom me because of my enemies. You know my reproach and my shame and my dishonor, and all my adversaries are before you. Reproach has broken my heart, and I am so sick. And I looked for sympathy, but there was none, and for comforters, but I found none. They also gave me gall for my drink and for my thirst they gave me vinegar to drink and you remember that happened to Jesus on the cross so these are passages in the old testament that foreshadow that look forward and help us to see what's going to happen with the messiah and obviously from the time of the disciples we see that the, those things came true it's part of the plan the table before them became a snare and when and when they are in peace May it become a trap. May their eyes grow dim so that they cannot see and make their loins shake continually. Pour out your indignation on them and may your burning anger overtake them. May their camp be desolate and none dwell in their tents. For they have persecuted him whom you have smitten. And they tell the pain of the one you have wounded. goes on and say... Add iniquity to iniquity, and may they not come into your righteousness. May they be blotted out of the book of life, and may they not be recorded with the righteous. And this is the passage that Peter says, although David spoke these words about an experience in his time, relate to the Messiah and obviously those who were part of the persecution of the Messiah. He says this applies to Judas. Judas. This is what David was talking about. Through the Holy Spirit, it's what David was talking about. Psalm 109. O God of my praise do not be silent for they have opened the wicked and deceitful mouth against me they have spoken against me with a lying tongue they have surrounded me with words of hatred and fought against me without a cause in return for my love they act as my accusers but I am in prayer thus they have repaid me evil for good and hatred for love appoint a wicked man over him and let him and let an accursed An accuser stand at his right hand. When he is judged, let him come forth guilty and let his prayer become sin. Let his days be few. Let another take his office. That's the passage that Peter relates to. He says, let his days be few and let another take his office. These are words that describe um, judgment, cursing, being cut off from God's people, being cut off from the blessings of God. Being taken out of the book of life, not being counted among the righteous. Uh, I think the reason for this description of what happened with Judas and his death really relates to a fulfillment of, of these passages that talk about the judgment and the awful things that can happen when you're an enemy of God. God had a plan. And from the beginning, God was working out his plan. They didn't know it, but now they come to recognize it. So, two things have to happen. Number one, he has to be taken out of the number of 12. He has disqualified himself. Uh, This is an apostolic succession. In other words, it's not that all the apostles have to be replaced. When James dies later on, he's not replaced. The issue here is that Judas has disqualified himself from his office. The word "office" is used, and it's the word. It's the same word that we use to talk about uh, a pastor. It's the word "episkopos." It is the overseer, the person who cares for the flock. His office, his role, his responsibility has been taken away and someone else is supposed to get it. That has to happen. Before the power can be turned on, these things have to happen because it's a part of God's plan. In the meantime, pray and wait. So then the men who have accompanied us during that time Uh, So then one of these men who have accompanied us during this time, that the Lord Jesus went in and out among us beginning from the baptism of John until the day when he was taken up from us, one of these men must become with us a witness to his resurrection. Some translations have have the the word must or have to or it's necessary here at the end of verse 22. Others have it at the beginning of verse 21. Therefore, it's necessary for one of these men who've accompanied us, who've seen all these things and been a witness to all these things, one of these men must become a witness with us of his resurrection. These things are necessary. Judas has to be taken out of the way, and then secondly, he has to be replaced. There's qualifications for this office, for this special place. Um, They have to have been uh, among the disciples from the time of John's baptism until the day of Jesus' ascension, and most importantly, he has, to become a, he has to be a witness to the resurrection. And it says that they put forward two, two people. don't know if these are the only two people, but as this group of 120 were gathered together, they decided on these two men. Joseph called Barsabbas, who was also called Justice, and Matthias. And they prayed. And they said, Lord, you know the hearts of all. Show which one of these, of these, of these two you have chosen to take the place uh, in this ministry and apostleship from which Judas has turned aside to go to his own place. I said that there are many ways in which this, this passage is, is screaming the same thing. Um, Lord, you know the hearts of all. They have this, they have this process of selecting someone. And um, they identify these two men. I don't know how they identified them, but they identified these two men. And, and they come to the Lord and they say, Lord, you know the hearts of all men. They're trusting in the sovereignty of God, the fact that he's in control and that he knows men's hearts. He knew about Judas's heart. He knew about Peter's heart. He knew about every single one of his disciples' hearts. And he chose them. And in this place, they ask for the Lord to be the one who not only has selected all these other 11 disciples, now apostles, But that the Lord would be the one who would select this one. These are Old Testament saints. These are Old Testament believers. These are Jewish people. Luke is a Gentile. He's writing. He's a companion of Paul. But these are Jewish people. And their lives are, are saturated with all the Old Testament scriptures. And in the Old Testament... Um, one of the ways to determine the will of God was to cast lots. And so they cast lots. And the lot fell upon Matthias and he was numbered with the 11 apostles. This is the last reference in the New Testament to casting lots as a means of determining God's will. Why? Because the Holy Spirit's coming. And he's gonna be the one to provide guidance for God's people. He's going to be the one to give direction, and there's not going to be a need for the casting of lots anymore. Um, There are a number of passages in the Old Testament that talk about the casting of lots. Proverbs 16 and verse 33 says that the lot is cast in the lap, but the decision is of the Lord. God is sovereign even in these random Things like casting of lots, where it seems like chance, where it seems like, you know, what what is this, how does this really determine the future? It doesn't make sense from a human logical perspective that throwing some stones or having some sticks or however they did the casting of lots, that this would be the way of determining God's will. But the scripture says that this was the way that God's will was determined often in the Old Testament. God's in control. It's his plan. And we as God's people have to love it when a plan comes together. Uh, this, these two words, it is necessary. It is, it, it, it's necessary. These two words are used in this passage. Um, the will of God that is known in the Christian community uh, in the Gospel of Luke, brings religious or ethical obligations. This is divinely ordained necessity. This is something that has to happen because it's part of God's plan. It's part of God's will. The will of God which personally summons people and that same will of God which fashions history according to his plan. Um, this word, it is necessary, is actually used 102 times in the Gospel of Luke and in the book of Acts. So all along in the book of Acts, one of the things that, that Luke is trying to communicate is that all these events that are happening that seem out of control, believer, it's part of will and the plan of God, the design of God. The will of God obligates Jesus to go to the cross he must go to jerusalem there's only one name whereby we must be saved it's necessary because it's a part of god's plan it gives a goal it gives a purpose it gives direction to every decision in life the things that are necessary it's the eternal predetermined plan the will of god that must come to pass something else that relates to the, the plan of God. They have to go to Jerusalem and they have to pray and they have to wait. Wait for the coming of the Holy Spirit, the baptism of the Holy Spirit. And even that waiting is not an accident. Um, so one of the things that, that's part of the, this, this, th- these disciples' lives is religious observance according to how the Old Testament has prescribed. One of those ways of, reserving, uh, of observing their faith, practicing their faith in God, is found in the feasts of Israel. Passover, as you remember, uh, remembers Israel's redemption or deliverance from Egypt and from slavery. The Feast of Unleavened, uh, it it, uh, foreshadows God's redemption from slavery or deliverance from slavery to sin. The Passover lamb was slain, and all who believed and applied the blood to the doorpost of their house was saved from death. Christ is presented in the Gospel of John as the Passover lamb. The same time that the Passover lamb was being sacrificed in the temple, Jesus was being sacrificed outside Jerusalem. 1 Corinthians 5, 7 says, he is our Passover lamb. And all who trust in that blood also will be saved. Then there's the feast of unleavened bread. It's connected to the Passover. It's seven days of separation from uh, leaven, which is a picture of sin. But it's also a picture of dependence upon the leaven is the yeast that goes in the bread, right? And the bread is what they live on, man, shall so not live by bread alone, right? Yeast or leaven represents dependence upon the old ways. Dependence upon life in Egypt. It represents the fact, the feast of unleavened bread represents the fact that they left so quickly that they couldn't let the leaven, they couldn't reproduce the leaven. Uh, so uh, you make this dough and you put the yeast in there and you let it rise. And, and when it gets to, when you're ready to um, put it in the oven, before you put it in the oven, you pinch off a piece and you wrap it in a, in a moist towel and you put it in a cool, dark place. And uh, the next time you want bread, you get the flour and you knead it and you make it. And then the way you put yeast into it is that you take that little piece that you saved and you knead it in. And so there's always this dependence on the last time, dependence on the last time, dependence on the last time. And when they left Egypt, there was no time to depend on the last time. Instead, they had to depend on God to provide for their daily bread what the Feast of Unleavened Bread is about. Separation from dependence on the things of Egypt, from the the Egyptian gods, Um, leaven, like sin, permeates everything. And so depending on God God and the wilderness for Israel was the the task and the thing that was the reminder in the Feast of Unleavened Bread. 1 Corinthians 5, 7, and 8 says that we, as believers, need to clean out the old leaven. Of wickedness from our lives. So the feasts are pictures for Old Testament believers, but they're also pictures for us. First fruits, the beginning of the barley harvest, the beginning of the grain harvest for the nation Israel, and they would wave these lo- they would wave these loaves before the Lord as an offering. Representing the fact that God has provided the first of a great harvest and that they're dependent upon him to continue to provide first fruits the first of all the labors of the things that you have planted in this agricultural society and now uh, the the first of those things have come in and now it's time to offer those first before the Lord and when you offer the first before the Lord it's with the recognition that there's more to come, trusting in God for the more to come. Christ, in uh, 1 Corinthians chapter 15, we read that He is the first, few, first fruits of those who are dead. His resurrection is a guarantee and a promise of our future resurrection. That first resurrection of Jesus Christ is a picture and a representation of the promise that we have of a resurrection. And then the day of Pentecost. It ends this this, uh, period of feast that happened in the spring in the nation Israel. Um, It is the conclusion of those spring festivals. They all relate to Israel, all these feasts relate to Israel. and it's the end of the wheat harvest. It occurs 50 days, Pentecost, 50, after first fruits. It's also referred to as the Feast of Weeks because it's seven times seven, so seven days in a week, seven weeks plus one is 50, Pentecost. It wasn't an accident that they had to wait till the Feast of Pentecost, it was part of God's plan. Pentecost is both an ending. Seven times seven, 49. And a new beginning, 50. The ending of something old. It's the last passage, as we said, that really talks to us in Old Testament terms. And the beginning of something new, the church, and the birth of the church, and the baptism of the Spirit, and all that the Spirit is going to do as the church begins. It's the end of the Old Testament era as we know it, and the beginning of the church age. On Pentecost, the Spirit baptizes believers and places them into the body of Christ. And the church is off and running. In this baptism, two major things happen. Jews and Gentiles and the major separation between these two groups is done away with. Um, men and women, if you go to the temple, there were two places of division. One was Where the Gentiles could come if they were believers in God, and where the Jews could come if they were believers in God. And there was a separation between them. There was also a separation between men and women. And in the baptism of the Spirit, all are one. They're brought together, they have the same access to God the Father through this baptism of the Spirit. And now the disciples go out as apostles, sent ones, to preach and proclaim this message. So these biblical feasts are God-given lessons. They're divinely inspired rituals that help the people of God, Israel, to remember God's great works in the past and look forward. They foreshadow future promises. They enabled Israel before the cross to express their faith in many of the same ways that we do today. Faith in the fact that God has a plan. And He's working out His plan. We don't understand what the plan is all the time. But we can trust Him that He knows what He's doing. Bill, this morning, as he prayed, talked about Jeremiah (laughs) and the grief that he was experiencing. And the suffering that he was going through. How encouraging is it to know that God has a plan? We may not know what that plan is, we may not understand what's going on. Think about the grief and the loss that the disciples experienced on those three days when Jesus was in the tomb. But God had a plan. Bill prayed for the folks that we know of, many of the folks that we know of who, who are going through difficult times. And it's encouraging to know that God had a plan. And He's working out that plan in the events of human history and the events of our lives. We don't always know what that plan is, but the reality is we must trust Him. Uh, Pastor Stevens talked about the transformational, transformational truth of the passage. And, and we're not yet at the place where the, the power of the Holy Spirit has come upon the church. Uh, so this is kind of like an Old Testament passage. But there's still things for us to glean from it. Things for us to get from it. One of the things that we're supposed to get from it is that uh, God's in control and he has a plan. We don't know what it is. We don't understand it. But he knows. The events of Acts chapter 1 have to happen in order for the baptism of the Spirit to come. It has to come 50 days after first fruits because it is Pentecost. That's part of God's plan. They may not have realized it at the time. They may not have realized it in the moment. But God already knew what what, what Acts chapter 2 was going to like, what what was going to happen, they may not have known. Instead, all they knew was they were supposed to wait and pray. Events of Acts chapter 1 happened in order for the baptism of the Spirit to come in the beginning of the church where the Holy Spirit now lives inside the believer to enable spiritual life to produce everything that we need to live for God, to empower us for ministry to each other and to proclaim the message to a lost and dying world. So here's the big idea. We must trust, you and I must trust God that he is working out his plan. Sometimes that trust means that we have to get going and and do something. But probably the harder thing to do is to not do something. (laughs) To wait and to pray. Pray. The big idea is that we must trust God, that he is working out his plan in our lives every day. Peter's recognition that the scripture had to be fulfilled regarding Judas and his disqualification. That the scripture had to be fulfilled regarding Judas' replacement because David foretold it. David spoke about it. And the lot, this very arbitrary, by chance kind of thing that is cast In the lap, Proverbs 16.33 says, but the decision is of the Lord. So random things happen in our lives. (laughs) Things that uh, don't make sense to us. And sometimes God wants us to wait and to pray and to trust in his plan. Some of you who are uh, Marvel movie fans will remember The Endgame. And there was a plan called the Time Heist. I had to look it up. I had to Google it. I'm I'm not one of those that are that much into it. But this was a planned mission organized by the Avengers aimed at resurrecting the victims of the finger snap that killed... I don't know how many, half? Half the population of the universe. You know who I look to, right? (laughs) Half the population of the universe by going back in time and retrieving the infinity stones that Thanos, the villain, that gave Thanos, the villain, unlimited power. They went back in time to alternate timelines to retrieve the stones, resulting in the final battle against Thanos and his army. And the whole movie is about the working out of that plan. And obviously, we love it when a plan comes together, right? In some ways, the literature and the movies and the things that entertain us are pictures of the, the longing that God has placed on our heart, the reality that God's placed in our hearts. Because we're a part of his plan, whether we know it or not. Whether we realize it or not, we're a part of his plan. And he's working out his plan. And so Jeremiah can say, you afflicted me. You're against me. You caused this great grief to happen to me. I feel like you're my enemy, not my friend. It doesn't make sense to me. And we can look back and read the book of Jeremiah and see that God had a plan. People of God in every time are faced with circumstances and obstacles where it would be easy to doubt God and his plan. To not trust him and his goodness and his control, his sovereignty over the affairs of men and over the affairs of our particular lives. What God is calling us to do in, in, in application of what we read in Acts chapter 1 is trust that God has a plan and he's working out his plan. And sometimes trusting him doesn't mean doing something great. Sometimes it means waiting for God to do something great. Praying and waiting for God to do what he's promised he will do. Sometimes that takes a long time especially for people who are so impatient. The truth that transforms us is that there's nothing greater that you and I could ever do than trust in God when it seems like it doesn't make sense. I'll say that again. There's nothing that you and I can ever do greater than trusting God when it doesn't seem like it makes sense. Because God has a plan, and He is working out His plan. And someday, you and I will be able to look back on the events of our lives, the ones that we define as good and the ones that we define as bad, and say, I love it when a plan comes together. God is great. Let's pray. Gracious Heavenly Father, we're thankful for the good times and the bad, for the trials and the triumphs. We're thankful that you are in control and that we're not. And yet sometimes it's easy to forget and to think that, uh, that, that things are out of control and you don't know what you're doing. But nothing could be further from the truth You are working out your plan and your will in your way. Help us to trust you. To place our faith in you in the day-to-day details of our lives. In the good times and the bad. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.